Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 32, the book of Acts, chapters 14 and 15. Well, our study of Acts chapter 14 today puts us at the halfway point in our study of Acts, but you know, it also essentially completes this contextual background for for understanding what comes next in pivotal Acts chapter 15. So we will look at a few things closely today to make sure that we have a good handle on that all-important context. Now Acts chapter 15 is usually described as the convening of the Jerusalem Council when Peter and Paul and James met with others of uh, the Jerusalem uh, leadership of the way to expressly deal with the contentious and thorny issue of including Gentiles into the movement. I don't think it was Luke's purpose necessarily to write Acts in such a way as to create this this build-up into a decisive moment but rather because his writings are divinely inspired that's how it all turned out in hindsight. Let's waste no time. Let's jump right in to this chapter of Acts by rereading it in its entirety. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible it's page 1380. Acts chapter 14. In Iconium the same thing happened. They went into the synagogue and spoke in such a way that a large number of both Jews and Greeks came to trust. But the Jews who would not be persuaded stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Therefore Shaul and Barnabah remained for a long time, speaking boldly about the Lord, who bore witness to the message about His love and His kindness by enabling them to perform signs and miracles. However, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the unbelieving Jews, others with the emissaries. Now eventually the unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles, together with their leaders, made a move to mistreat the emissaries, even to stone them. But they learned of it, escaped to Lystra, to Derbe, towns in Lyconia, and to the surrounding country where they continued proclaiming the good news. There was a man living in Lystra who could not use his feet, crippled from birth. He'd never walked. This man listened to Shaul speaking. Shaul Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had the faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! He jumped up and he began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they began to shout in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the form of men! And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, Paul Hermes, since he did the most talking, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, intending to offer uh, a sacrifice to them with the people. And when the emissaries, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their clothes and ran into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We're just men, human like you. We're announcing good news to you. Turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In times past he allowed all peoples to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without evidence of his nature, because he does good things, giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons, filling you with food and your hearts with happiness. Even saying this barely kept the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some unbelieving Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They won over the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But as the disciples gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the town. And the next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. 
after proclaiming the good news in that city, making many people into Talmudim, disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, reminding them that this is, that this is through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after appointing elders for them in every congregation, Shaul and Barnabah, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And now passing through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. After speaking the message in Perga, they came down to Atalia. From there they sailed back to Antioch, the place where they had been handed over to the care of God for the work which they had now completed. When they arrived... They gathered the Messianic community together, reported what God had done through them, how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed for some time there with the disciples. Barnabas and Paul are now in Iconium, having been forcefully ushered out of town um, from Pisidian Antioch. Now, following their usual pattern, They went immediately to the local synagogue. They had a measure of success in persuading some members of the congregation, both Jews and Gentile God-fearers, to believe in the gospel message. However, those Jews who rejected the message, which was the majority, went to the local Gentiles in hopes of gaining their support to increase the pressure against Paul and Barnabas so that they'd leave. Well, it seems... That is, modern readers of this account, we're always left in the lurch trying to understand exactly what was it about Paul's message that caused such a fury among Jews and Gentiles, generally everywhere they went. We discussed that a little bit last time, but I want to bring it up again. Because it's important that as thinking human beings, particularly as believers... We contemplate the why behind the anger and the violence that was, that was leveled, especially against Paul, but that other disciples suffered as well. The why of it plays a significant role in the outcome of the Jerusalem Council that follows in the next chapter. And I can assure you that the why wasn't merely one thing. And also that who exactly the upset parties were was largely dependent on whether those parties were Jews or God-fearing Gentiles or pagans. That may sound like a lot for us to take on. But I think it's important because as followers of Messiah, each one of us has been commissioned to spread the gospel. We're not to leave it up to others. And as such, we need to realize that different people will respond differently to our message depending on their background, their current religion, their age, their ethnicity, even the current politically correct mindset that we happen to be in at the moment. In America, about the only real danger we face in evangelizing our family, our community, is to be shunned. But in other parts of the world, to evangelize brings the likelihood of being attacked, perhaps even killed. So the first thing I ask myself is, why if these folks didn't like Paul's message, didn't they just walk away? Or just tell him he's wrong? Or just ignore him? Well, first of all, the local pagan Gentiles of the Roman Empire proudly held a religiously tolerant attitude. Our modern interfaith movement would have loved them. They counted all religions, all gods, all holy books as equally valid and worthwhile. But Jews seemed to the pagan Gentiles as embodying the opposite of all of their Roman values. The Jews showed no respect for the other religions and their many gods. They insisted there was only one God in existence and that was their own God, the God of Israel. 
everything about the Jews reeked of exclusivity. They had their own way of eating. They had their own special day of the week in which they refused to work. They didn't have altars and make sacrifices. They didn't participate in the popular and customary national festivals to the gods. And they even had visible success in getting not just a few Gentiles to, uh, to, to, to abandon some of those mainstream Roman religions and join Judaism. The diaspora Jewish community had learned how to balance the dual needs of operating peacefully within a Gentile-dominated society and observing their Judaism. So, for the pagan Gentiles, you see, Paul was a Jew who seemed quite radical and irritating. He represented the epitome of intolerance and contempt for anything other than what he believed in. And this hateful attitude threatened the local civil stability and peace of the ethnically, ethnically diverse Roman Empire. So the solution was to silence him or, or, or drive him out of town. Now for the Gentile God-fearers, they had been taught by their Jewish teachers to obey and rely on halakha, Jewish law. In some cities, they were allowed to join in the local synagogue, even without undergoing a circumcision and thereby becoming Jews. So they greatly valued this privilege and the accompanying relationship with the Jewish community. Now, while younger people today might not realize it, it was only a few decades ago in America, young people, that a substantial part of one's identity depended on where you attended church. Thinking back to my youth, yes, I can remember that far, I cannot recall ever hearing of a person in whatever community I lived in being called an atheist. In fact, a person who claimed Christianity but didn't attend a church was looked down upon with suspicion. And which church you attended had much to do and much to say about your socioeconomic status, whether you were part of the in crowd or you operated on the, the fringes of local society. This same social dynamic applied to an even greater extent in the Roman Empire in New Testament times. So God-fearing Gentiles who had abandoned their mainstream pagan religions and joined the Jews put their social status and their relationships, especially with family and friends, at great risk. A Gentile adopting the Jewish faith brought real and tangible costs along with it. Now comes along this fellow, Paul, telling the synagogue congregation that at least some of their theology is wrong. Even more, while Paul said that the God-fearers didn't have to become Jews to be saved by Yeshua, the circumcision faction among the believers told him the exact opposite. Whichever way these God-fearer Gentiles decided on the subject and which way the Jews among their congregation felt that the Gentiles must choose to remain in fellowship with them would have a great effect on their relationship with their Jewish friends as well as with their Gentile friends. So it was a catch-22 for God-fearers. No matter which way they chose, there was going to be negative repercussions. Now for the Jews, they too adhered to halakha, that fusion of Torah law, traditions, and customs, but at a far higher level than the God-fearers. So Paul's message was difficult, difficult for the Jews to hear. The issue of the Messiah was hugely contentious. There was a, a regular stream 
of self-proclaimed messiahs who came and went in those days. And very little about this Yeshua who lived so far away in the Galilee measured up to what the Jews had been taught to believe a Messiah would be and would do. But without doubt, the part of the gospel message that turned so many Jews to violence against Paul and other followers of the way was their insistence that this Yeshua was not only the Messiah, he was God. This, to most Jews, was blasphemy. And it was idolatry at an almost unimaginable level. See, it's common today, especially in Israel and among the Orthodox, to characterize a Christian who evangelizes Jews as attempting to steal their souls. Jews are quite serious about this accusation. Thus in Israel, to even speak about Yeshua to a child under 18 years old is a serious crime for which you can be arrested and sentenced to prison. This would have been the same mindset that the majority of the diaspora Jewish community would have had against Paul and the other evangelists to their thinking if they accepted what was proposed about worshipping a deceased carpenter from Nazareth, it would have destroyed their relationship with Jehovah God. And since blasphemy and idolatry were punishable by death, according to the law of Moses, it seemed perfectly justifiable to them to try to kill Paul. This was in no wise murder from their perspective. It was justice. In fact, it was probably viewed as an act of mercy when Paul was merely beat up and chased out of town and told never to return. So whether pagan, God-fearer, or Jew, the bottom line issue against Paul and the way was that the gospel message was a radical message of invitation to blasphemy and an incitement for civil instability. So with all that understanding now, let's continue with verse 3 of Acts 14. What Paul and Barnabas did in response to the threats and to the persecution was the opposite of what most of us might do today when we were faced with the same thing. They remained in Iconium and they continued to preach the truth. In fact, they stayed for a long time. They did not seek compromise. They spoke out boldly. But so let's not overlook that what seemed to buy them time and attention was the miracles that accompanied what they preached. The miracles are generally used in the Bible as an affirmation of something. In this case... It was an affirmation of the truth of God's love for all the peoples of the earth. And that was at the core of what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. Even so, the people of Iconium were divided towards their message. There's a subtle change here that shouldn't go unnoticed for us. We are told that the people of the city were divided against them. Not that the people of the synagogue were divided against them. This means that Paul and Barnabas were no longer preaching in the synagogue, but rather in various places in and around the city of Iconium. This also means they were no longer preaching to Gentile God-fearers who were already devoted to the God of Israel. They were now taking their message to pagans who were completely ignorant of the Holy Scriptures. However, in time, we don't know how much time, the opposition grew fierce enough that there were plans formulated to do serious harm to Paul and to Barnabas. They learned of the plans. They left Iconium now for the cities of Lystra and Derbe. This time, there is no mention of going to a synagogue to preach. Most likely because these two Roman towns had no synagogues. 
So as they're preaching to a mixed audience now of Jews, God-fearers, and pagans, they run across a local man who's been crippled since birth. Now in a description of the account of the healing of this lame man by Paul, it sounds much like the one we heard about Peter's miraculous healing of a lame man lame man much earlier in, in Acts. There's little doubt in my mind that of the many miracles we're told that Paul brought about, Luke chose to report on this one exactly for the purpose of drawing a parallel between Paul's and Peter's ministries. Why? Because he was intent on demonstrating an equality of mission, of authority, of devotion, of ability, of faithfulness between Paul and Peter. Luke, the Gentile, God-fearer, had a vested interest in showing that the apostle to the Jews, Peter, and the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, were on the same level in God's eyes because Jewish believers and Gentile believers had been placed by God onto the same level. So when Paul sees this Gentile cripple in Lystra is believing what he hears, Paul uh, hears Paul is proclaiming about Yeshua and that he has enough faith to uh, has enough faith, he obeys Paul's order to stand. And for the first time in his life, he stands on those feet and he's healed. The crowd went wild with enthusiasm. This crowd consisted mostly mostly of Lystrans who spoke their own dialect. So when they began happily shouting, Paul had no idea what they were saying. Turned out that these people thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. Well, of course they would think that. We all interpret what we see and what we hear within the context of our own familiar culture, our language, our experiences, our circumstances. They thought Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. And this in itself is a great lesson on the difficulties of crossing cultural boundaries and languages. None more so than when dealing with our Bible. Paul and Barnabas meant one thing because it was all meant within a Hebrew cultural context but it was understood by Lystran locals in their Lystran cultural context. This is what has happened within Christianity as we have a faith that is based entirely on a Hebrew cultural religion but for centuries it's been reinterpreted in a Gentile cultural context. Here the Lystrans got it so wrong that it produces a comical scene for us. Paul and Barnabas nearly had a nervous breakdown because of it. Now I've often said that if our thoroughly Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, ever came back today and walked into a typical Western church, he'd be astonished, be confused. He'd be absolutely confused by what he sees because much of it looks like nothing like what he meant or intended. And this is because Christianity in general contends that historical and cultural context ought to play no role in interpreting the Holy Scriptures. This is why the church rails at the notion of our faith coming from Hebrew roots. This is why Seed of Abraham Torah class exists to try to recover at least some of what was intended, even if we have no goal of reestablishing a biblical era culture. The fact that we are told that the locals thought they were Zeus and Hermes is also interesting, you see, because these were gods from the Greek pantheon of gods. Their Roman equivalents were Jupiter and Mercury. Therefore, Lystra, we realize, is more allied with a Greek lifestyle than with a Roman lifestyle. So the comedy continues as the local priest of the temple to Zeus comes running to greet his god, Paul, 
bringing with him animals to be sacrificed in his honor. When Paul and Barnabas finally figured out what was happening, they were horrified. And they protested that not only were they not gods, they weren't divine men. Rather, they are ordinary human beings just like everyone in the crowd. Now that Paul's audience is pagan means something very important. He can't talk to them like he would to the Gentile God-fearers. These pagans know nothing of the prophets or of the law of Moses. So Paul speaks to them in terms of natural revelation. That is, it is self-evident that God exists because of all the good things He does for all the peoples of the earth, like bringing rains that grow crops to provide them with food. Paul says that in past times, the Lord overlooked their pagan lifestyles and He allowed people to walk in their own ways. But that's changing. The so-called seven Noahide laws are a perfect example of natural revelation for any human to see and to go by, regardless of whether they have the Torah to consult. However, here in Acts 14.16, Paul is referring to this natural revelation in a very narrow sense. The previous verse says, turn from these worthless things to the loving God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words... For the moment, Paul is only interested in establishing that the God of Israel is the creator of all things. So the natural revelation of water that just falls from the sky all on its own and the miracle of food that just spontaneously grows out of the soil, this provides sufficient proof that no people anywhere has any excuse for not acknowledging Yehovah as their creator God. Now I want to pause for just a moment to make a comment about Paul and what he says in Acts and in, in his epistles as well. Whom he's talking to, what the setting is, greatly matters. When he's talking with Jews, he speaks in one way. Because they have a Hebrew background that includes familiarity with the prophets and the law of Moses so he can explain and persuade using scripture. However, when he talks with Gentiles, especially if they're pagans, then he's going to use broad terms that aren't meant for us 2,000 years later to tear apart and minutely examine the words. And especially those statements should not be used to formulate a church doctrine and especially those that, that we'll read about when he's exactly talking to pagans, not just God-fears. In other words, depending on his audience, Paul might super-simplify a matter, even using language that is general enough that pagans who know nothing of the Torah or of the prophets, and certainly nothing of the patriarchs or the covenants or, or, or of redemption, can grasp, they can get the gist of it, even if it's fairly limited, what they get from it. So here in Acts, Paul is talking to people who are totally ignorant of the Hebrew faith. Unfortunately, many would also have had their stereotypical views of Jews reinforced by Paul. And no doubt they were quite insulted when Paul referred to their precious sacrificial offerings that they brought to Paul and laid at his feet and to their sacrificial ceremonies and uh, rather sacred ceremonies and to to their idols and to these priests that were involved. What did Paul call them all? Worthless things. How do you think that made them feel? Well, Paul indeed spoke the truth. But it was said too severely. Too severely. Paul's harsh mouth got him into a lot of trouble on numerous occasions. Well, the crowd backed off from making sacrifices. Thinking Paul was Zeus. 
But then we hear of some of the unbelieving Jews from Pisidian Antioch and from Iconium who had opposed Paul in their hometowns coming to Lystra to foment trouble for him there. They incited the crowd in Lystra who no doubt was still stewing over having been told that all of their cherished religious system and icons were worthless. They stoned Paul. And he apparently went unconscious as he was pelted. Everybody thought he was dead. But he survived. And the next day, we are told, he went right back into Lystra. Even so, it must have been just to make a point that he wasn't going to be intimidated as he and Barnabas left the following day for a place called Derby. Now we're told that he proclaimed the good news in that city. This implies that Derby also did not have a synagogue, so he preached to the townspeople in the city streets. Now we know nothing more of what went on there except that some of the residents became believers. After that, he retraced his journey, going back the same way he came, stopped to visit the believers he'd made in Lystra, Iconium, and then Antioch. The stated purpose was to strengthen them. Now, no doubt, this was needed after seeing their leader, Paul, beaten and driven out, and this probably would have made them fearful. Throughout the New Testament, we see much suffering and tribulation placed upon new believers such that it was fairly normal for believers of this era to get to get roughed up. Thus Paul tells them that it's through many hardships that we must enter into the kingdom of heaven. How at odds this is with so much preaching in our modern times. It seems to imply that if we come to Christ, we can expect a happy path, our lives are made free from disease and troubles from here on. Understanding that accepting Messiah could cause us more trouble than before we come to our faith rather changes our purpose for seeking salvation from being self-focused to being God-focused from wanting our problems to be solved and living in a comfortable life to be ready to serve our Lord no matter how uncomfortable that service might be or what it might cost us. But since Paul and Barnabas knew they'd be moving on, it was necessary to institute a proper structure within each believing group so that it could function as a community of believers in their absence. So Paul and Barnabas chose certain men to be the elders, the leaders, and then anointed them with prayer. They left next for Pamphylia. And in the province of Pamphylia, they spoke in the city of Perga. And from there they went to the seaport of Atalia, which is still in the province of Pamphylia. And they arranged passage on a ship that took them back to Syrian Antioch, where their missionary journey had first begun. And upon arrival, they reported all that had happened to the believers of the Antioch synagogue and that they had successfully evangelized many Gentiles. They stayed on at Antioch for some undetermined amount of time, no doubt to rest and recuperate and for themselves to be strengthened. Now please note, Paul's center of his activities was the synagogue of Antioch on the Orontes. Just as Peter's center of activity was Jerusalem in the Holy Land. The leadership of the way resided in Jerusalem with James being that supreme leader. So it was the diaspora Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who were funding Paul's mission to the Gentiles. So let me say this another way. As of this time, there were two headquarters of evangelism in this era. Orontes Antioch and Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, those believers who were James and Peter led did not see eye to eye with those believers who were Paul led on every issue. This is another key piece of the puzzle to grasp as we now enter Acts chapter 15. 
So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1381. Acts chapter 15. Read along with me. But some men came down from Judah to Antioch and began preaching the brothers, you can't be saved unless you undergo a brit milah, circumcision, in the manner prescribed by Moshe. This brought them into no small measure of discord and dispute with Shaul and Barnaba. So the congregation assigned Paul, Barnabas, and some of themselves to go and put this shela, this matter, this question, before the emissaries and the elders up in Jerusalem. Well, after being sent off by the congregation, they made their way through Phoenicia and Shomron, that's Samaria, recounting in detail how the Gentiles had turned to God. And this news brought great joy to all the brothers. Well, on arrival in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the Messianic community, including the emissaries and the elders, and they reported what God had done through them. But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Parashim, the Pharisees. And they stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Torah of Moses. And the emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter. And after lengthy debate, Kepha, Peter, got up and said to them, Brothers, You yourselves know that a good while back God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the Gentiles should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God who knows the heart bore them witness by giving them the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. That is, he made no distinction between us and them, but he cleansed their heart by trust. So why are you putting God to the test now? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear? No, it's through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered. It's the same with them. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. Yaakov, this is James, broke the silence to reply. Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon, again that's Peter, has told in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Gentiles a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this because it's written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That is, all the goyim, the Gentiles, who have been called by my name, says Adonai, who is doing these things. All this has been known for ages. Therefore, my opinion is that we should not put obstacles in the way of the goyim who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled from blood. Because from the earliest times, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. Then the emissaries and the elders, together with the whole Messianic community, decided to select men from among themselves to send to Antioch with Saul and Barnabas. They sent uh, Yehuda, called Barsaba, and Selah, both leading men up from among the brothers, with this following letter. From the emissaries and the elders, your brothers. To the brothers from among the Gentiles throughout Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some people went out from among us without our authorization, that they have upset you with their talk, unsettling your minds. So we have decided unanimously to select men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Saul. We have dedicated their lives, who have dedicated their lives to upholding the name of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. So we have sent Yehuda and Selah, and they will confirm in person what we are writing. For it seemed good to the Ruach HaKodesh and to us not to lay out anything heavier, any heavier burden upon you than the following requirements. To abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. Now if you keep yourselves from these, you'll be doing the right thing. Shalom. Well, the messengers were sent off and they went to Antioch where they gathered the group together and delivered the letter. And after reading it, the people were delighted by its encouragement. 
Yudah and Selah, who were also prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After they had spent some time there, they were sent off with the greetings of Shalom from the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, where they and many others taught, and they proclaimed the good news of the message about the Lord. Now after some time, Shaul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we proclaim the message about the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him, with them Yochanan, John, the one called Mark. But Paul thought it would be unwise to take this man with him since he'd gone off and left them in Pamphylia to do the work by themselves. There was such sharp disagreement over this that they separated from each other with Barnabas taking Mark and sailing off to Cyprus. However, Paul chose Selah and left after the brothers had committed him to the love and kindness of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the congregations. Well, Paul and Barnabas are still in Antioch of the Orontes when some Jews showed up uninvited. And they began to teach that a Gentile who wanted to trust in Yeshua for salvation had to first be circumcised. That is, these Gentiles had to convert and become Jews. Now please note that these were believing Jews who came from Judah who formed this circumcision faction. Those Jews from Judah were under the influence of the Jerusalem leadership of the way. So here we see an example of the conflicting viewpoints between the Jewish believers of the Holy Land versus the Jewish believers of the Diaspora. Now before we embark on a nearly word-by-word study of Acts chapter 15, I think it's good to balance it with a very brief report from Paul about his perspective on the Jerusalem Council, which is the central event of Acts chapter 15, as he tells it in the book of Galatians chapter 2. Now remember, what we get in Acts is Luke's perspective on what occurred. And he was not an eyewitness. Rather, he gathered credible reports from a number of sources after the fact, apparently quite soon after the fact. But in Galatians, we're going to hear from one of the participants of the Jerusalem Council, Paul. And there we get his personal viewpoint on what occurred. Okay? Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, you will find it on page 1453. We're just going to read a short section of it. Galatians chapter 2, complete Jewish Bible, page 1453. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I again went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took with me Titus. And I went up in obedience to a revelation. And I explained to them the good news as I proclaim it among the Gentiles, but privately to the acknowledged leaders. I did this out of concern that my current or previous work might have been in vain. But they didn't force my Gentile companion Titus to undergo Brit Malah, circumcision. Indeed, the question came up only because some men who pretended to be brothers had, had been sneaked in. They came in surreptitiously to spy out the freedom we have in the Messiah Yeshua so that they might enslave us. Not even for a minute did we give in to them so that the truth of the good news might be preserved for you. Moreover, those who were the acknowledged leaders, what they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by outward appearances. These leaders added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the good news for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been for the circumcised. And since the one working in 
Kepha and Peter to make him an emissary to the circumcised had worked in me to make me an emissary to the Gentiles. So having perceived what grace had been given to me, James, Peter, and John, the acknowledged pillars of the community, extended to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles, they to the circumcised. Their only request was that we should remember the poor, which very thing I have spared no pains to do. So there we have Paul's perspective on what went on. Paul explained that the Jerusalem Council meeting was essentially a leaders-only meeting. And he emphasizes that it was convened in private. Now, there's a reason when privacy is a large concern. And Paul was concerned about all the work he had done with the Gentiles from the perspective that if the official leadership of the way didn't sanction it, they didn't give their blessing to it, it was all for nothing. There is no hint of what Paul might have done if he had not received the favor of the leadership. But as we've gotten to know Paul, and we learn about his iron will and his fearless self-confidence, a sense always of being right, one wonders if he would have submitted or might he have rebelled, gone his own way, formed his own separate faction of believers. Thankfully things turned out well and we'll, we'll never know. But the bottom line is that Paul knew from being a Pharisee who resided in Jerusalem and knowing the ultra-pious and the rigid doctrinal stances that Jerusalem Jews often took on religious matters, there was real danger of a split. So in obedience to a revelation that told him to go up to the leadership in Jerusalem, he went but with some anxiety. We find out in Galatians that young Titus accompanied Paul to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem leadership did not force Titus into having a circumcision to remain a member of the group. Now remember, all of the leadership of the way were Jews. Titus was a Gentile. This decision to not require circumcision for Titus was no doubt a huge relief for Paul. Because it told him most of what he needed to know. The leadership of the way was not supportive of the circumcisions, circumcision faction's insistence that believing Gentiles essentially had to be made into believing Jews. In fact, Paul claims that those who came to Antioch insisting on circumcision for these new Gentile believers were pretenders. Now this is a term that we're going to see Paul use in a few of his epistles. And we need to be cautious about how we take it. See, Paul sees those who disagree with his theology too much as not sufficiently genuine in their messianic faith to be counted as a believer. It is very difficult to ascertain if Paul means it in the extreme sense that they literally were not and never were actual believers, but rather they intentionally masqueraded as believers in order to infiltrate and do harm. Or, from Paul's perspective, perhaps a pretender was someone who sincerely saw themselves as a believer in Yeshua, but they were sincerely wrong. That is, what these so-called pretenders believed was too far off base from the correct doctrine to rightly consider themselves as legitimate, legitimate believers, at least in Paul's eyes. And when I weigh it all out, it's my opinion that that's more what he means. That is, for Paul, a pretender is a kind of a negative epithet thrown at a professing believer particularly professing Jewish believers who don't measure up to Paul's standard of belief in order to qualify as true believers in his eyes. 
And we see in Galatians that Paul had very mixed feelings about the leadership in Jerusalem. In his mind, and again, Paul came from a very strict Pharisee background. Some of these leaders sure didn't look like the kind of leaders he was used to submitting to. But as he says, they added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't put any of their rules or burdens upon him. Something he no doubt doubt feared could have been the result of this meeting. Rather, the super-organized Paul describes the results of the Jerusalem Council as confirming his place as the primary emissary to the Gentiles and Peter's place as the primary emissary to the Jews. Now this was a two-edged sword. That is, organizationally, it made Peter and Paul co-equals with Peter in charge of one task, Paul in charge of another. On the other hand, it shows a definite division had developed. And so, Peter and Paul would naturally be compared and contrasted to one another in every imaginable way. In authority, in intelligence, rate of success, everything. That's what we humans do to our leaders. This goes back to my statement that in chapter 14 of Acts, as Luke tells us about Paul healing that lame man in Lystra, that the purpose of reporting on that particular miracle out of the many more that were not reported on, it was to help establish Peter and Paul as equals with one having no more influence than the other one. See, it's fascinating to me that in the Gentile church, particularly of the West, it is Paul's preeminence that has become the norm. Why is that? It's obvious. Paul's mission was to the Gentiles. Peter's mission was to the Jews. The church didn't much like Jews. Paul's statements have become the basis for the bulk of church doctrine. While Peter is left to be a more likable and impulsive fellow who Jesus loved and trusted, but little more. Catholicism, however, calls Peter the basis upon which the church was created. This is also no doubt why very early on in Christianity, as the church father John Chrysostom testifies to in his commentary on the book of Acts, the book of Acts was barely known within the church. Think about that. Barely known. That is, the church had elevated Paul's thoughts generally above any other person's thoughts in the Bible. But the book of Acts works very hard to make Peter and Paul equal. Something had to give. Something had to give here. Well, next week we will begin in earnest to dissect Acts chapter 15.